Practice guidelines for determining brain death have long been established by the American Academy of Neurology, but is there uniformity across the United States in adhering to these standard guidelines? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. David Greer, Assistant Professor of Neurology at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, and Harvard Medical School. Dr. Greer directed a national survey of neurology and neurosurgical programs to analyze policies for making brain death declarations. Welcome, Dr. Greer. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Today we are discussing brain death declarations. Dr. Greer, could you define brain death for us? Sure. So brain death is defined as the irreversible cessation of all functions of the brain, including the brain stem. The two most important things are that the cause is known and that the cause is known to be irreversible. In other words, we have to know why the patient is in that state, and it has to be a state from which they can't be reversed or treated. The state of brain death is one in which the patient has no awareness, they're in coma, they have no brainstem reflexes whatsoever, and in essence, there's no function of the brain whatsoever. Why is it important that you know the cause? Because the cause should be known so that we can know that there's something that could not be treated differently. If you don't know what's causing it, then you may be potentially missing some treatable cause. Could you give us an example? Sure. So in a patient where they've had a head trauma, but you're uncertain what's going on because they can't get a CAT scan, they may have a subdural hematoma that could be surgically treated, and potentially you have some reversal of their dysfunction. Another thing would be something like a subarachnoid hemorrhage, in which case they may be in a comatose state, but they may have hydrocephalus. So placing a ventriculostomy may relieve the pressure and allow the patient to wake up or at least regain some function. And what about drugs and alcohol? Sure. So the patient must be free of drugs or alcohol in a level that may influence the, the exam. The prerequisites require that the patients not have any intoxicating medications on board, including alcohol, and that they not have any paralytics on board either. Anything that might sway the clinical exam has to draw it into question. Other things to consider are things like acid-base disorders, severe electrolyte disorders, things like hyperaminemia, severe endocrine disorders. These are all things that could potentially throw off the exam and draw it into question. Now, recently in the television program Gray's Anatomy, a patient came in who was hypothermic, and one of the clinical aphorisms that one of the surgeons stated there was that you have to be warm and dead to be declared dead. What does that mean? Well, we say the same thing. You're not dead until you're warm and dead, meaning that even uh, if you're hypothermic, that could suppress brain function and even brain stem function. So they could lose their cranial nerve reflexes just because of the hypothermia. There have been reports in the literature of patients who have been, quote-unquote, frozen down to 13 degrees Celsius and then rewarmed and actually regained function. These are patients who are submerged and drowned in, in very ice-cold water, for example. So we require that patients actually be normothermic for the determination of brain death. Well, is the determination of brain death a difficult one to make? It depends on your level of familiarity with the examination and your comfort level in performing it. So it does require a detailed neurological exam in terms of how to test reflexes. These are things that can be taught to any physician with time. But like anything in medicine, there, it does take some practice. But it's also a rather cookbook. You, you test certain things, and if they're 
presence or absence, you move in a certain direction. And if you are unable to trust the clinical examination, then you have the ability to move on to an ancillary test to try and help you make the diagnosis of brain death. So I wouldn't say that it's so complex that it has to be done in a tertiary care center or even necessarily by neurologists. So in other words, any qualified physician who is familiar with brain death can make this diagnosis and declare brain death? I would say potentially. I wouldn't say that any qualified physician who is familiar with brain death could do it. I think that they need to be trained and show some level of competence if they're not a neurologist. And you could even make the case that a neurologist who, you know, for example, would primarily work in an outpatient setting seeing Parkinson's patients, they may not feel very comfortable also trying to declare somebody brain dead because they hadn't done that type of examination in a long time. So whoever's doing it, I think that there needs to be some kind of procedure by which they're signed off on for their capabilities and level of expertise. Now, how do you differentiate brain death from systemic death? So systemic death requires the cessation of the organ systems otherwise, such as the heart beating and the patient breathing. So that's systemic death. This is a situation in which only the brain has died, and yet those systemic organs are still functioning, and they may be functioning quite well. If you have just joined us, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, professor of surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. David Greer, assistant professor of neurology at the Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We are discussing brain death declarations. Dr. Greer, can a nurse ever make the determination of brain death? The guidelines that we have have all stipulated that it be a physician. There are no guidelines that I'm aware of in which a nurse is designated as a person capable of determining someone brain dead. And I'm also not aware of any physician's assistants or nurse practitioners for that matter. It's always been stipulated in guidelines that I've seen that it be a physician. Now, is there uniformity? among these criteria for brain death? Are you speaking in terms of the study that we did in terms of the different hospitals? Yes. In other words, why did you begin this study and begin this research? Well, for me, it was a very personal thing. I attend both at the Mass General Hospital and the Brigham and Women's Hospital, and I found in determining brain death at each hospital that there were very different guidelines that were in place. At the Mass General, we were very specific in what needed to be done during the examination and what types of things needed to be in place before even trying to declare somebody brain dead. It was a much more specific document instructing the clinician what to do, whereas the Brigham and Women's guidelines were much more short and less explicit and kind of left us scratching our heads a little bit as to what to do in certain situations that might be more confusing. In other words, do each hospital determine their own specific guidelines for making the determination of brain death? That's correct, and that's the legal way that they're allowed to do it. Every institution in the United States may form their own guidelines. Now, we hope that they adhere somewhat to the practice parameters that were released by the American Academy of Neurology in 1995. Those are listed in 1995 in terms of just the practice parameters, saying these are the things that should be an essential part of the guidelines, but they are not bound by law to adhere strictly to those guidelines. That being said, they probably shouldn't deviate from them too much because this is a legal definition of death. To swerve away from the National Academy guidelines in regards to that would be a little bit of a, a leap of faith and might potentially lead to some medical legal problems. But they do have leeway to be more explicit or potentially less explicit uh, if they so choose. This can be determined 
and is determined on a local level. So tell me about your research. So what we did after seeing that our two hospitals were so different was that my colleagues and I had the idea to approach the top 50 neurological institutions in the country. And we used the U.S. News and World Report edition regarding neurosurgery and neurology hospitals and found those top 50 and basically wrote to people that we knew at those hospitals or even people that we didn't know, asking them to submit their hospital's guidelines for us to review and compare to the AAN guidelines to see if there are are major differences. And what were the major differences? So we looked at five different categories of difference across the board. We looked at who could determine brain deaths in each hospital, which people were required to be involved, whether it be an attending or a resident or a neurologist or an intensivist. The second category that we looked at was what kind of preclinical testing was required, such as looking at the metabolic status of the patient, drug intoxications, things like that, what kind of things were specified. The third category was the clinical examination. What types of things did they specify should be parts of the clinical examination? The fourth thing was apnea testing, which is a very specific part of the brain death testing. What kind of things were specified in the apnea testing that were ensuring that it was done correctly? And the final category that we looked at were ancillary tests, meaning the tests that you would go to in a situation where you couldn't perform the clinical exam or couldn't trust the clinical exam. What things could you do instead to try and make the determination? So we took those five categories of information and compared the 50 hospitals to the AAN guidelines for their differences. What did you find? Well, we found that 41 of the 50 wrote us back, and that's an 82% response rate, which is quite good. But I'll tell you that that took some dogged determination, (laughs) multiple emails to multiple different people, phone calls, you know, chasing people down at national meetings. It's amazing how reluctant people were for this. And to be honest, it's nothing to be concerned about because this is actually publicly accessible in many circumstances. Actually, you can go to the hospital's websites and find out what their local guidelines are. This is not private property per se. So we had a, a pretty good response rate after that. So 41 of the 50 responded ultimately, and 38 of them had guidelines. Three hospitals actually didn't even have guidelines, which we found surprising in and of itself. We found that there were major discrepancies in all five of our categories. One of the first things that we found was in terms of who could determine brain death and whether it be a neurologist or neurosurgeon involved. Well, actually, only 42% of the time did they require that it be a neurologist or neurosurgeon. 36% of the time, it was a primary physician. 11% of the time, it was an intensivist. And 11% of the time, they also had no mention of who needed to do the the determination. In terms of when they did have a neurologist or neurosurgeon involved, which was the 42%, only 35% of the time did that neurologist or neurosurgeon need to be an attending. 65% of the time, it could be a resident alone, which we found simply amazing because of such an important declaration. This is a legal definition of death to not having an attending present was very concerning to us. Now, did they communicate with the attending, or just were they allowed to make that determination themselves? Well, it wasn't really specified in the guidelines exactly whether there needed to be a communication to the attending or not. Now, this may be implicit that that occurred, and we did not probe these individual hospitals to find out what, quote-unquote, really happens, which, you know, may be much more than what is actually seen in their documents, but we simply can't know that. Now, Dr. Greer, why is this important, that there is no uniformity? Well, it depends on how you view it. You could say, well, people can have leeway with this. We don't need to be so rigid in medicine. There can be some leeway to determine things in in slightly different ways, depending on your circumstances. For example, I think it could be reasonable for an intensivist 
to make this determination, or again, anybody who's trained competently in doing it and develops a level of comfort could potentially be able to do this. I think that when you look at different hospitals, not all of them have the capability to have a neurologist or neurosurgeon come in at all times of night. And these patients, they don't care what time it is. If they're brain dead, that'll happen whenever their event occurs. And so having people who are on staff in the hospital who have a level of comfort with this, I think is perfectly reasonable. But there has to be a mechanism by which we're able to train these physicians to do it competently and without fault. I want to thank our guest, Dr. David Greer. We have been discussing brain death declarations. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at www.reachmd.com, now featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.